This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring Panina Taylor. What an interesting story. Grew up as a Jew, but most of her early adult life spent as a Christian, as well as a Messianic Jew, reaching out to proselytize those in the Jewish community. A fascinating tale of personal spiritual development. I got to meet with Panina a couple months ago, live when she was in my area on a speaking tour, actually having her back in a couple of weeks to my own program on campus to speak with my students. Meanwhile, all of our usual reminders to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U. On Twitter, reach out for speaking engagements, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Tales of a Jewish Podcaster, lessons learned from over 100 of the most interesting and inspiring Jews alive today. As always, a reminder to subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and please help others subscribe as well so we can spread the Jews You Should Know inspiration. And now to my conversation with spiritual seeker, author, and lecturer, Panina Taylor. We are here with author, speaker, lecturer, and Someone with a fascinating, colorful life story, Panina Taylor. How are you, Panina? Hi, Ari. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Likewise. I'm very excited we could do this for those on the listening end. Uh, we are doing this one live. Very often we do uh, the interviews over the internet, but here I had the privilege that Panina was in town doing a speaking engagement at the local Aish in Rockville, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., near where I live in Silver Spring, Maryland. And so I was able to zip over here this morning and actually do this in person, which is always much more fun. <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for making the time. Um, so like we do with all of our guests, Panina, let's take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and your upbringing. Okay, thanks. Um, well, I was born into a secular Jewish home, right? So when I explain this to audiences, I like to say that that it meant that I, what Judaism meant to me was it explained why I had a big nose, why I talked with my hands, and why I liked Chinese food. But other than that, Judaism really had no relevance to my life. It, it meant absolutely nothing. Now, where, where did you grow up? I was actually born in Lakewood. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, which nowadays, even just that part, never mind the rest of my story, uh, would be unique because there's not that many secular Jews, I would dare say, in Lakewood anymore. Yeah. But back then there were. <laughs> okay, so you were uh, you're growing up as a kind of an assimilated Jew with... Uh, a lot of Chinese food, and <laughs> didn't have much uh, connection to Judaism itself. Right, right, exactly. And my parents were divorced when I was four, and I suffered a bit of abuse at the hands of a friend of the family. Don't need to go into the details, but you can imagine that that would set the stage for a little bit of a troubled childhood. Um, when I was 10 years old, we moved to Miami, Florida, 
and um, it was in actually in high school that I started asking a lot of existential questions like what's the point of life if everything is just if there's nothing out there greater and more meaningful than all of this pain and everything then what's the point and as I was talking with a classmate of mine in school she said to me well you know Penina um, we all have these questions the answer is you need to have a relationship with God and, um, and how had you felt about God until that point? So I hadn't really thought much about God, but part of the story that I left out was when I was in fourth and fifth grade, my paternal grandparents had arranged for me to attend an Orthodox day school in Lakewood. And so um, it, it's interesting because not a lot of what I learned there stuck because I learned that what happens at home stays at home and what happens at school stays at school. My mother was secular. Um, and she didn't want to hear anything about what was going, what I was learning at school. Um, but so here I am all these years in the future in high school. And as she mentioned God, I thought, okay, that, that rings true for me. You know, maybe what she's saying is right. And so at the age of almost 16, I was introduced to God and to Jesus because my classmate was a born-again Christian. And so what's interesting about that is that, and it's funny, at my talk last night I had, I was confronted by a Christian woman who was in the audience, which was really, and she was very, very upset. She felt very betrayed by my talk because what happened was, you know, my new, first of all, my newfound faith gave me the strength to make all sorts of changes in my life. At that point I was drinking, I was smoking, I was doing light drugs, um, skipping classes, hanging around with bad kids, you know, the whole deal. And my newfound faith gave me the strength to make all sorts of changes, including stopping drinking and smoking and the drugs. I started attending classes. I had a better crowd of friends at school. And I mean, it's really pretty incredible story, but all that shows is that connecting to God, connecting to the divine, even if you aren't quite correct in the way that you're connecting, it's a powerful experience. You know, it's a powerful thing. And so I began to make those changes in my life. And my mom was watching this as it was going on. And how are your, uh, your secular Jewish parents feeling about this kind of, uh, Transition into the world of Christianity. Well, so I didn't know my dad. My, I had seen him one time in 15 years that my parents were divorced. And uh, my mom, on the one hand, the little Jewish connection that she had kind of was not happy yeah. about it. But she herself had been searching. She herself had been um, looking for things. I'm, I think somebody at some point had given her uh, a copy of the New Testament mm. Um, in fact, I think I found it at some point while I was on this process and I was like, why does my mom have this? You know, cause I'm, I, I just had become a Christian and I'm like, why did my mom have it? And she was upset actually. She was, why do you have to? And I joined the, the group that I joined at first was Southern Baptist. Mm. And so she had this kind of idea in her head that they're extremists. So she said to me, you know, why do you have to be Southern Baptist? Why can't you just be a plain Christian, you know, we would say a par of Christian, right? You know, just neutral. Um, and I was like, because this is where, this is where I was introduced to Jesus. So, um, so she was not thrilled, but she was, I think she was happy in the changes that she saw going on in my life. How did the Christianity sort of manifest itself? In other words, 
were you just going to church every day? Were you going to Bible studies? Were you? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no. Change your life. I anybody who knows me knows that if I if I believe something's go right, in, I huh? go all in. <laughs> Absolutely, I was. Um, attending Bible studies in school. I mean, I was in high school, so um, every Sunday I was going to church, Wednesday night meetings, anything that was available, I was part of it. And um, and what was interesting was I began to, of course, share my faith with my mom because Christians, that's part of, that's the great commandment. Like, you know, we have 613 commandments, right? And everybody talks about the 10, but the one great commandment that's what is called great commission is what is called in the new testament is to share the christian story the, what they call the gospel and southern baptist is an evangelical yeah movement, right yeah. which means that there's if i understand correctly there's even a greater emphasis placed on spreading that message for sure anybody that's quali- that kind of falls into the category of evangelical that that's what evangelical means right. it comes from the word evangelos which means good news so it's the idea that you need to share this with other people and so i started sharing with my mom and she thought to herself as she had watched this transition if something could have such a profound effect on her daughter's life then it must be the truth and so i brought my mother and my sister to christianity as well i was going to ask if there were any siblings involved just one sister yeah older younger younger okay so uh so yeah so i brought them to christianity when i graduated high school i went to bible college i studied evangelism um where was this in uh, miami in miami it was yeah it was when i went it was called miami christian college now i believe it's part of it's called trinity university okay so um so i went to bible college i got my certificate in evangelism and um, and then I started dating a guy who was the older brother of my best friend in high school. He also had been to Bible college. He went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So anybody you know who's listening maybe who lives in Chicago knows that this is a very um, evangelical, very um, powerful, if you will, um, Bible college, missionary training college. My uh, husband was actually studying to be a missionary pilot which is a whole other discussion as to what that means. But um, anyway, so... Is that somebody who drops leaflets from the sky over here? No, no. He, he actually wanted to pl- fly planes. Right. And he wanted to take missionaries to these places to like in Africa. Right. And, you know, so they, they don't take big planes to go there. They would take small planes and, because they would also need to bring supplies with them for the local populace and things like that. And so they also had to be trained as missionaries because, I guess, depending on the arrangement, you know, you might also be doing some work in the field and so it was one of those kind of a setting so he was a trained pastor and um and we started dating and we started getting really serious and we started talking about marriage and by the way just to to interrupt um, i'm just so curious and it's really not that germane probably to the story but what is what is dating relationships look like in that sort of quote-unquote orthodox culture right so i would say it's definitely kind of a a cross between what we know as orthodox dating and secular dating in other words we did go out um we spent a lot of time together we did hold hands um there was some you know touching which is not what you find in the orthodox world right um but there was not going to be any actual intimacy that was not 
allowed that was not okay. So I would call it kind of halfway, you know, between the two. Um, we dated for nine months, which is a lot longer yeah. than you would find in the Orthodox world because once we discover that we've got the right person, we make it quick so that there's no temptation to do anything right. that they shouldn't do. Um, yeah, so so that's basically it. It was definitely more the secular model than the Orthodox model, but very wholesome as far as the the limits that were placed on sure. on uh, interactions with each other. Um, so you were getting serious with this with this guy with this pilot or this emerging yeah, pilot? <laughs> emerging pilot, right? It turned out that he um, washed out of the actual airport uh, uh, flying part of the process. So oh, no. he was a trained pastor, but he didn't make the cut. For, because they were very, very, like, you know, if you had 100 students, maybe 10 or 15 mm -hmm. made it into the program. So um, it's not actually a reflection on him other than that he just didn't make it into the program. But um, but he was a pastor, you know, and he was trained. And, um, and we were dating and we were getting serious. And I thought to myself, you know, I've always had this dream. You know, girls dream about their wedding from the time that they're old enough to know what a wedding is. Um, I had always had this dream that my father would walk me down the aisle when I got married, but I didn't know my dad. And so I said to my mom, you know, would it be okay to write a letter to my dad to invite him to come for a visit? Now, back then, of course, that's before emails and texting and all of that. And, and what year are we, just for some context? Um, 1986, okay. I think. Yeah, 85, 86. And um, so, yeah, so I asked my mom if it was okay to write him a letter, and she said yes. And I wrote a letter to my dad, and I invited him to come visit. Now, remember, we're at this time we're living in Miami, and he's actually living still in New Jersey. So you knew where he was? I knew where he was. Yeah. Not exactly. I knew he was in New Jersey. I didn't know where. Um, he wasn't in Lakewood. And uh, he agreed to come for a visit. So he came down for a couple of weeks to visit with us. And he, we were getting to know him. And um, he was getting reacquainted with my mom. And at some point, he says to my mom, you know, I, I think I'm falling back in love with you. Would you remarry me? Wow. And my mom said, well, I'm kind of falling back in love with you, too. But we have a problem because I'm a born-again Christian and you're a secular Jew. And that's not going to work. And I said, well, wait a minute, not a problem. I'm trained in evangelism, right? I know what to do. So I bought a Bible for my dad and I started sharing with him um, the gospel, the, the Christian story. And I took him to church and my dad became a Christian too. Well, three for three. Yeah, there you go. So I, I don't know what it is. I just seem to have this ability. I, yeah. Um, you know, but they say with great power comes great responsibility. So right. later on in the story, there are definitely some regrets. But so my mom and my dad got remarried after having been divorced for 15 years. It's an and incredible thing. That, that obviously must mean that there wasn't, it wasn't terribly acrimonious at the earlier point. I think, I think it definitely was. There was a lot, but they hadn't seen each other for 15 years and time, it may not heal all things, but, but it definitely makes you forget the severity. And, and also they had grown and changed. I mean, 15 years is a long time. They were both very young when they got married, really mm. too young, I feel, to have been married. They didn't understand how to have a relationship, how to love people. My dad battled with depression. Um, and so it was just a really difficult early time. And um, so now, though, they're 15 years older. My mother has been a mother for so many years, you know, for, um, you know, 17, at that point, 19, almost 19 years. 
And um, so she was more mature. My dad had been through therapy and other things, so he was more mature. And so, yeah, it was definitely a different situation. And, and so they decided to get remarried. It's incredible. Hey, what, what's so interesting to me is that you were that interested in having Kim back in your life. I was. I think that every kid has a fantasy. You know, we fantasize about the ideal that we see. So you watch TV and you've got all of these married couples. You very rarely see nowadays, nowadays more so. Now. Yeah, but back in the 80s, you know, the TV was full of, of it's, I'm not as old as not Leave it to Beaver. No, 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 I'm not that old. But you had Cosby, Cosby not, exactly. Not to mention where he's gone. Since well, then, but, okay. But, but the, the show itself show, yeah. really um, glorified this wonderful marriage and um and there were plenty of other shows as well and so you know you grow up seeing that and seeing that your family doesn't look like that and so you fantasize about that so the truth is is that when my dad came into our life i didn't even it almost didn't matter what kind of a person he was at that point i went to my dad and my mom back together you know and uh so so it happened and And you you obviously hadn't felt spurned by him or or profoundly hurt by him you know it's interesting i did but it i guess i buried it it Mm. didn't come out until much later on in my life that i realized um you know and and he had remarried in between now it wasn't a halachic marriage in case anybody listening is is wondering about all of that um, but he had helped this woman raise her two sons. Mm. And I definitely, as an older adult, thinking about it, I hadn't thought about it as a kid. I mean, it upset me that my father didn't care enough to even send birthday cards. Um, and it upset me that there was no communication, but that was the extent to, that I had thought about it. As an older adult, I really start had to deal with the hurt and the pain of you know, those two boys were good enough for him to be a father to, but he didn't father me. Yeah. And um, and he didn't love me enough to have me in his life. Of course, I didn't understand all of the complexities sure. of the pain of the divorce and, and what that would mean as far as his ability well, to connect to us. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Did you ever get to uh, sort of confront that and, and with him directly? I, I imagine yeah, later on, he uh, actually passed away about six years ago. Um, there was certain levels of discussion, but no, I actually made the conscious decision as I went through my own healing process. Um, I made the conscious decision not to confront him because of the fact that he was, in my opinion, like very fragile emotionally. Uh-huh. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to destroy him. I didn't want to cause him to go back into a very, very painful place. When I was strong enough to deal with it after I got my own healing, you know, I gave forgiveness and and I didn't need to rehash it. And I certainly wasn't going to gain anything by making him depressed and miserable over what he had done. And, you know, unless I wanted to extract revenge, what would be the point? And I didn't want to do that. Right. And so um, I talk a lot. I, as probably later in the podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about where I've shifted in my focus in life. But um, I do a lot of life coaching. And one of the things that I talk about is the difference between forgiveness and pardon. Mm. And, um, you know, every 
fall when we get to the holidays and we talk about forgiveness or when people listen to personal growth experts who say, you know, you've got to forgive, otherwise it's going to eat you up, it's going to destroy you. Resentment is a, uh, is a poison that <laughs> you take and expect others to I suffer say, from. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I feel like we really do ourselves a disservice by using the word forgiveness to mean two different things. Mm -hmm. Because I say that pardon is a gift that you give to others and forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. Interesting. So when you forgive somebody, you let go of your right to hold on to the pain that they've caused you because when you hold on to that pain, of course, you're allowing them to continue to injure you virtually over and over and over again, right? Pardon is when you give up your right, if you will, to extract consequences for the pain that they caused you. A pardon, and, and we see that in the prayers for the high holidays, you know, when we're asking God to forgive us, we use several different languages, and one of them is slicha, which is pardon, which is wipe clean my offenses so that I don't have to suffer from the consequences of them anymore. I don't have to worry about what that, how that's going to affect my life, both in this world and in the world to come. So anyway, um, I chose to not only forgive, but also to pardon and just let, let it move on, you know, so that we could, and my, my children had a fantastic relationship that's with my father. And yeah, and I don't often share some of the difficulties and I'm not sharing with the audience all of obviously the details um, of the difficulties in our relationship because I wanted them to have a wonderful memory of a grandfather that they had a great relationship with. Yeah, unbiased by, so, um, without the prejudice of the, that history. Yeah, exactly. And so after my parents were remarried, um, seven months later, my husband and I got married and my father did walk me down the aisle. Wow. It was in a church. Sure. <laughs> it was in a church, but I would have expected father, that at that yeah. point in time. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. then you were what, 19, 20 years old at that time? I was 19. Yeah. Oh. And, um, I was actually one month short of 19. And uh, so very young. My husband and I today look back and we're like surprised that we managed to stay together because it was, we were both very young, very stupid, sure. um, very immature, but, but we did. We got Best married. time to get married, according to some. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It, and it, the worst. <laughs> it, right. It, it has its pros and its cons <laughs> because we did. We grew together, yep. which was fabulous. We didn't have any preconceived notions of what it means to live on your own, you know, we didn't have to make that space. I moved from my parents' house to, you know, sharing my life with someone else, and I didn't have to undo having been by myself for a period of time or anything like that. Yeah. So there definitely was advantages to that. They often say that if uh, people realized what mar getting married meant, you know, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it to, that's why it's good to get married young before you kind of realize. while you're still stupid. Obviously, that cut both ways. Uh, yeah, it can bring its, its challenges as well, of course. So, sure. you, were your was your plan to go into the ministry as a couple? Formally? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We had planned on doing that. Now, at the time, though, my husband didn't have a church of his own. He, I mean, we were young, yeah. and uh, he had tried his hand. He went to a place in Florida called Full Sail Institute. He got trained also in sound engineering. And cool. he he was intending on, yeah, he was intending on like running sound for these big mega churches, uh, mega churches and yeah. stuff like that. And um, I guess he didn't have as much confidence in his ability to be one of the pastors that's on the stage. He's more of the kind of, you know, caring, uh, teaching kind of guys. Um, but he really loved the sound industry. And so he trained in that, but he searched as well as he could in Tennessee, you know, Nashville, whatever, he couldn't find a job. 
And so he came back to Miami to be with his family, who was in Miami at the time. And that's kind of how we met. So anyway, so he was unemployed, really. I mean, he was working for a, as a administrative position for a government job, and it was like he wasn't happy with it. So he decided to enlist in the United States Air Force. And so when we got married, he was new in the Air Force. We, we married after boot camp, but while he was still in technical school, and he trained in electronics engineering. Did he consider again going back into the pilot space at that point? I think, I think he was... I think he was afraid to, you know. I think that, it, you know, he kind of got burned. And um, my, my husband's a very, he's a very sensitive person, um, not especially outwardly, but, you know, it's it's easy to kind of get disillusioned when, sure. when you get rejected by things. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so he felt like, well, at least in the Air Force, he'll get trained in a, in a career. Um, they're not going to kick him out for at least four years, so it's guaranteed that he'll have a job. And it's a way to support a family, and that was his biggest concern. He couldn't support a family on a barely above minimum wage government administrative job, um, and this was going to give him a career that he would be able to support a family with. And so we got married, and he ended up getting stationed in England, which was we had one of the places we had requested, and so we wanted to, you know, we were young and wanted to explore, world. exactly, you know, and his, he had the options of England and Germany and, and um, I think Japan, but we chose England. I always had that curiosity, and so we went there, and we did fall in love with England, interestingly enough. We lived in the countryside, and so it was a much slower-paced life, and, you know, it wasn't London. It was rolling hills and sheep that go bah, and uh, so, yeah, so we were there, and while we were there, one day I was praying, because that's what you do, and I had this feeling that God was telling me to light candles on Friday night. So I didn't know where it was coming from because I certainly didn't have an example of it. My mother didn't light candles on Friday night. My grandmother didn't. Um, as I say when I tell my story, I'm sure that my great-grandmother must have, but I didn't remember her doing it. But I knew that Jewish women lit candles on Friday night because I had been to the Orthodox Day School for two years. Right. So even though a lot of it didn't stick, I mean, obviously there was a certain level of knowledge that I got. I learned how to read the Hebrew alphabet at least, and, and I knew a couple of things about being Jewish, not much. But um, but I did know that, that Jewish women lit candles on Friday night, um, but I wasn't sure how that would work with being a Christian. I wasn't sure why God would be, you know, because as a Christian, I understood that Judaism was a thing of the past. It was old and it was replaced by the New Testament and the new story and Jesus and all of that. And so I went to my husband and I said to him, I have this really strong feeling that God wants me to light candles on Friday night. What do you think I should do? And he said to me, well, if you believe that this is what God wants you to do in your, in your service to him, then go ahead. You know, was this on a Friday, by the way, when you got this vision? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think it was over a course of several days or a week. I was, I'm a very deep thinker. I weigh things. And so, um, you know, and then I went to my husband. And I said, like, it, it's not going away, this feeling. And I really feel like I should be doing this. And so I remembered that I had inherited my great-grandmother's candlesticks. So I went to the buffet and I pulled out the candlesticks. And next to the candlesticks was a Maxwell House Passover Haggadah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, Haggadah is the book that we use for the Passover Seder. And um, I pulled it out. And now, 
why did I have this Maxwell House Passover Haggadah? Because even though my family was secular, we did do one thing Jewish each year, and that was we had our own Passover, I say Seder in quotes. It wasn't what most Orthodox Jews would recognize as a Seder. The family gathering. Right, exactly. We got together. We came over. My great-grandmother would say, good yontif, which, you know, that's what Bubby said. I didn't know what it meant, but that's what she said. And... Um, We'd come in, and my, my grandfather would pull out the stack of Maxwell House Passover Haggadahs that he had collected over the years, and he would say, you know, something like, everybody turn to page 13, and we would open it, and he would read a paragraph or two. We would sing the chorus to Dayenu, and then we would eat. Sure. We did have matzah because it was Passover, but we also ate a lot of things that most of us wouldn't recognize as kosher for Passover now, you know, but uh, but I had this fond family memory of doing this, and so I asked my grandmother when I got married if I could have one of these Haggadahs, and she said, yes, of course, and so what does this have to do with lighting candles on Friday night? Well, the addition of the Haggadah, by the way, not all later editions have this, which is why I say it that way, but the addition of the Haggadah that I had had the blessing for lighting candles in the front page because of course, we light candles at the beginning of every Jewish holiday. And then the last line said on Friday night, say this, because sometimes Passover begins on Friday night. And so I, I always say, thank God for Maxwell House. Not only did it have it in the English and the Hebrew, but it had transliteration. Ah, yes. So I was able to read the Hebrew blessing <clears throat> in English letters, and I began lighting candles on Friday night. Meanwhile, I'm going to church on Sunday. So you did this actually not just once, but as a routine. Yeah, every week. Wow. I started doing it every week. And, uh, you know, I'm still going to church on Sunday. It didn't change any of my beliefs, but I just really felt that this was what God was telling me to do. So I started doing it. Sure. And what did that do for you? At that point, not much. <laughs> but as you'll see, it, it became a part of a bigger picture. So one day, I don't know how long later, really, um, my husband comes running down the stairs and he says, Penina, Penina, I was reading in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is what non-Jews call our Jewish Bible, our Tanakh. Um, they've retranslated, I would say mistranslated, some of the passages so that it says what they needed to say. And they've rearranged the order of the books, but basically it's our Tanakh. Um, he says, I was reading in the Old Testament and I came across a verse that says that Jewish, there are certain things that God told the Jewish people to do forever. He said, and if forever really means forever and I'm to be right before, my, before God, then my Jewish wife and my Jewish children need to do these things. Interesting. Yeah. So he recognized you as Jewish. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I say he was more aware of my Jewishness than I was. Not that I didn't know I was Jewish, but awareness is another level. And um, I, I really do believe it was Hashem, it was God. Um, but, you know, I said, so the thing is, is that I am a person who seeks truth. It always has been. And my husband also. And in fact, even in our Christian expression, as we were on our journey, when we discovered certain things that most Christians do that are traditions that have nothing to do with Christianity but came out of paganism, through sure. Catholicism, um, we abandoned those. Like even though we celebrated Christmas, we abandoned a Christmas tree very early on and things like that. So here's my husband telling me that there's something that God wants the Jewish people to continue doing. And so I said, okay, go ahead, shoot. He said, well, it says in the Old Testament that God told the Jewish people not to eat pork or shellfish. And I was like, you mean no more ham and cheese sandwiches? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. 
and I think, well, I have to think about this for a minute. But again, if this is what God wants me to do and I want to serve him in truth, then I'm going to do it. And so I agreed and I decided to stop eating pork and shellfish. So here I am, I'm lighting candles on Friday night. I'm no longer eating pork or shellfish and I'm still going to church on Sunday. So a little while later, I'm reading in the Christian part of the Christian Bible, the New Testament, and I come across a verse that's talking about head coverings. I was kind of like a little surprised, even though I had read my Bible, I don't know how many times, I guess I just really hadn't stopped and noticed this passage. And, um, but it was confusing because I wasn't sure whether it was saying that men were supposed to cover their head and women weren't, or women were supposed to cover their heads and men weren't. And so we invited the pastor of our church, which was not my husband at the time. He was still in the Air Force. Um, We invited the pastor of our church to come to explain because he was a Greek scholar, and Greek is the language that the New Testament is written in. And he comes in and he says, well, you know, this is kind of a complicated passage. And I say, I know, that's why I invited you here. (laughs) He said, no, really, really, even in the Greek, it's hard to tell which word is modifying which word. And so I said, okay, well, what do you think it means? And he said to me, well, I think it means that married women are supposed to cover their head when they pray. So I can't teach that now because women nowadays don't want to hear it. But but that's what I believe that this is saying. Now, as a person who was seeking truth, um, you know, women nowadays not wanting to do something was not enough of a reason for me to not do something if I believed it was the right thing to do. And so I decided to start covering my hat. And just to double click on that for a minute, because I think it's such an extraordinary posture that's very rare, uh, as you note, you know, this sort of fanatical obsession with truth. Um, Many people would argue that at least today we live in kind of like a post-truth era you know others have pushed back on that but regardless i think it is fairly obvious that many people are not seeking sort of a pure intellectual truth in life right there's a big a large hybrid or or sort of mixture of you know emotional and and personal bias and whatever it is and again not to judge we're also we are composite beings yes absolutely intellectual but you seem to have this sort of this bent towards finding the pristine idealized truth and then following that at all costs. Right. Where do you think that came from? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I just do believe that it's something that God put in me, that that's part of my makeup. I mean, I'm definitely an emotional person. There's no question. Um, And I definitely think that, um, you know, especially religions, uh, religious faith systems need to take into account the emotional part of it because most people are are like you said composite beings and emotion does figure into it very greatly and as a person who worked later in trying to help jews come back to judaism um i realized that there are some times when emotion is everything and you have to you have to cater to that and you have to recognize that and there are so many people that go into christianity specifically because of the emotional pull because um, Christianity, because they don't have the same restrictions we do as far as worship, so they have a lot of music, it's very emotional, it feeds that, it, and it feels good, and, you know, people need to feel good. Um, I try to explain to my friends who have come out of Christianity and go into Judaism, they're like, that's the one thing I really miss. I really miss the worship music and the the singing and the stuff like that. And, and the Shabbat singing just, you know, in the shul, in the synagogue, just isn't quite the same. And I try to explain to them, go get yourself invited to a Jewish wedding. 
because that's where we experience the kind of joy that Christians experience on Sunday morning. And there's a really good logical reason for that. In the, in the Christian world, the church is the center of Christian life. That's where everything happens. That's where everybody comes together. And in Judaism, the synagogue, we make the mistake of thinking a synagogue is a Jewish church, and it's not. The synagogue is only a facility that facilitates our doing our duty right? Because our prayers, the formalized prayers, they're not as much about the relationship with God as they are a replacement for the sacrifices for the nation that were done in the second, in the temple, back when we had a temple. And so now that's why we have the morning service, the afternoon service, and the evening service. They replaced those, and that's part of our national identity. But we have, and you know, some sects, of course, are better at this than others, but in the Hasidic world, we have this idea of hitzbodedut, of personal prayer, of pray, pouring out your heart to God. And, um, and so for Judaism, the center of Judaism isn't the building, it's the home. And so where we celebrate Judaism at its, at its core is when we, we're making a new Jewish home. There's a new Jewish home being established at a wedding, and so that's where you have this incredible outpouring of joy and celebration. And so I try to encourage people who are, who are um, struggling with this transition from this incredible unrestrained joy that they experienced in worshiping God in the church and they don't necessarily find, although definitely it's more so in some groups than sure. in others. Because you can get them invited to a, a Karlbach. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and my community in Israel, our Friday night prayer service is a Karlbach-style service, and it's incredibly full of joy. Um, but it's at the Jewish wedding that you really experience this unbridled joy, and that's because we've made another Jewish home and we've built onto the community, which is where the center of Jewish life is. And I think that that's like a really important That's a really interesting point. reframe. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you were, back to the story, you were uh, deciding to cover your hair. Why not? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's funny because I tell the story about how, um, you know, I, I started with a hat, but I'm very distractible, and I found that I wanted to talk to God, because that's what prayer is, talking to God. And I found that I did it more than once a day, you know? And so um, I frequently had to go find my hat, and it was <laughs> rather, excuse me, rather inconvenient for the moment. Um, and so I decided that what I would do is I would buy a scarf. And I didn't have any example of, of any women that covered their heads. You know, the, the best I could do was the Amish women with their little bonnets on their head, you know. Otherwise, I had no example. So I said, okay, well, I'll go get a scarf and I'll wear it around my shoulders, you know, around my neck. And when I want to pray, I'll put it on my head. And when I'm not praying, I'll have it on my neck. And that way I won't lose it. Um, won't misplace it and, you know, kind of get out of the moment when I want to talk to God. But I discovered that I talked to God throughout the course of the day. And so the scarf like was on, scarf and on and off. off. Exactly. On and off and scarf on and off. off and scarf off. off. Exactly. And so I just decided, you know what, forget this. I'm just going to cover my head all the time. And so I started wearing a scarf all the time. Oh so now here I am. I'm lighting candles on Friday night. I'm not eating pork or shellfish. I'm covering my head all the time. And something began to happen inside of me. 
Uh, at the time, of course, I didn't know what it was, but now I call it my spiritual identity crisis. Um, I believe that once, you know, that my Jewish soul began to become at odds with my Christian faith. So I'm a firm believer that once a Jew takes on a mitzvah, any mitzvah, just one of the commandments, and begins to do them, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing, they open a conduit between their soul and God, and a communication begins to happen. And so I had this restlessness going on inside of me. Well, my mom and my dad came to visit us in England. I was about to have my second child. And uh, last I had left them, they were attending a nice little Assembly of God church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, I'm helping my mom unpack her suitcases. And one of the suitcases is full of Judaica items. Shofars, tzitzit, talits, kipot, you know, yarmulkes, um, prayer books. And I turned to my mom and I'm like, mom, what's with all this Jewish stuff? And she says, well, while we were in Pittsburgh, we discovered a group of Jewish people who were born Jewish, who had found a way, who had become Christians and had found a way to synthesize their Jewish heritage with their Christian faith. And they called themselves Messianic Jews. Now, I had never heard of this term Messianic Jews before, but I had heard of Jews for Jesus. And uh, I really thought that maybe this was the answer to what was going on inside of me. And so a year later, when we came back to the United States, um, we sought out a Messianic congregation. We started going. We actually got ourselves stationed in the Washington, D.C. area because oh. that's where my parents were living. Where were you living exactly? Just Bowie. In Bowie, okay. Yeah, great. yeah. We lived in we lived in Maryland a total of sixteen years. Oh, wow. um, Laurel and Bowie were our primary first places. Okay. So Laurel's not far from not far Silver from College, Spring. College Park, where yeah. I work. Yeah. Yeah. Right exactly. on Route One. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, because my husband was stationed with the NSA and stuff like that. So or I'm not allowed we'll to say that. We'll I was tell say, I'm not allowed to say that, right? Um, so. Anyway, so we started attending a Messianic congregation. Actually, it was in Annapolis, which is a long drive. Um, eventually, we switched to Washington, D.C., but it was still every, every Messianic congregation that was in driving distance of us was an hour's drive away. And so <coughs> one day, my parents approached my husband and I, and they said, you know, um, the closest congregation is an hour away, and Paul's a trained pastor, and Panina at this point, I mean, we had been involved in lay leadership now, you know, for I don't know how many years, but ever since we got married, and and so I sang, and I played the guitar, and um, I had led women's prayer groups, and Bible studies, and stuff like that, so my dad's like, you know, Paul, Paul is a pastor, and um, and you've got also these leadership skills, and, and Mom and I also have leadership skills, but we're also very administrative, and I think that the four of us together would make a great team. Why don't we start our own Messianic congregation? And so my husband and I prayed about it, and we decided that that was what God wanted us to do, and we started our own Messianic congregation in Bowie, actually. And uh, at the time, though, I thought to myself, you know, if we're going to be doing something Jewish, because it's called Messianic Judaism, maybe we ought to know a little something about Judaism, don't you think? Sure. And so I went to the Jewish bookstore looking for a book on Judaism. Well, I discovered, of course, that there's lots of books on Judaism <laughs> in the Jewish what, bookstore. Where did you go to, by the way? Um, Rabbi Lisbon's. Which, was it Lisbon's? Lisbon's. Lisbon's, Judaica. Yeah, exactly, which I don't believe exists don't anymore. Exists anymore. He yeah. sold it many years ago now. Um, but at the time, it was um, user-friendly. It was accessible. Yeah. And um, 
So I discovered a book that had an intriguing title, at least to me. The book was called How to Run a Traditional Jewish Household. It was written by a very modern Orthodox woman named Blue Greenberg. Sure. And uh, as I read the book, I discovered that she didn't call herself Orthodox. She liked using the term Torah observant. Mm. And I thought to myself, you know, I like the sound of that Torah observant. Maybe that's what we need to be. Maybe we need to be Torah observant Messianic Mm. Jews. Interesting. Yeah. And Interesting, because she found, the, I believe, Jofa, which is a right, Jewish exactly. Orthodox feminist alliance, but okay. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm very careful to say that, you know, she inspired me. That doesn't sure. necessarily mean that I align myself with all of her sure. beliefs and stuff, but that her book was extremely instrumental in my journey. Yeah. And so I went back to the Jewish bookstore to find more books on Judaism. The next book that I bought was the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, which is the abridged <laughs> code of Jewish law. I bought it in English. I read it through several times. I, it definitely made me more confused than anything else, but uh, inspired me to go back and buy the art scroll tome on keeping kosher. I bought books on, on keeping Shabbat. I bought books on the laws of family purity. And I like to say everything you can learn about being an Orthodox Jew from a book I did. Uh, Of course, you can't learn everything there is to learn about being an Orthodox Jew from a book, but everything you can, I did, and began to make changes in our life. And I started to dress more modestly. My husband and my sons were now wearing a kippah and tzitzit. And if you had run into us on the street, you would have thought we were an Orthodox Jewish couple, just like any Orthodox Jewish couple in Rockville or Baltimore or Jerusalem. You would not have known that we also believed in Jesus. I'm very curious because I think there's a perception that there's something very um, duplicitous, manipulative mm-hmm. about the Messianic Jewish, whatever you want to call it, in yeah. Jews for Jesus, that movement. Absolutely. Um, and that there are people kind of, you know, sheeps in, la- in, in lamb's clothing or whatever the... Uh, wolf's clothing. Well, sheep in wolf's clothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and kind of people that are intentionally and deceptively sort of dressing themselves up in order to attract Jews into their congregations and then proselytize about Jesus. Sure, no question. You were not doing that. Okay, so so we definitely have, we even have Jews for Judaism has led, copies of letters from some of the people that started uh, the more modern incarnation of Messianic Judaism, and their goal was to create a church that looked like a synagogue right. that would attract Jews, and for the sole purpose of converting them to Christianity, no question. But just like a lot of other things, once you get beyond one generation, you start to have people who that's their identity. And it's not about being deceiving, deceptive, even though it is in and of itself deceptive. Sure, that's not the intention of the Correct, correct. And um, yes, because this great commandment is to proselytize and to get people to believe. And, and you have to understand, too, not that I want to whitewash the dangers or anything, but they're coming from actually a very altruistic place. And that is this idea that if you don't believe in their Messiah, that you're going to burn in hell Eternal forever. Damnation. Exactly. Yeah. And they're actually, for the most part, very good, caring people sure. who care about other people's souls. And they don't want to see that happen. And so they want to share this good news with you so that you will embrace the Messiah and you will. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of errors in the whole, the, the whole trail you know, the whole world view that's involved in Christianity. And I actually wrote a book, I wrote a counter-missionary book in addition to my own story to, um, because I was giving a course in this in Jerusalem and I wanted to make it available to people more widely. But, um, but I think now, now that we're looking at, I think like the third generation, if you will, of Messi- Messianic Jews in the modern incarnation of Messianic Judaism, I think you see more and more a lot of this 
I was raised with this belief, and just as we're willing to give regular Christians kind of the benefit of the doubt, that even though sharing their faith is part of their faith, so yes, we do have to be look on the lookout for them seeing us as prey, if you will, um, at the same time, we do see them as simply good people who love God and misunderstand how God relates to, to the world and to people, and we give them a lot of latitude. But because Messianic Judaism or Jews for Jesus, whichever terms you want to use, are definitely encroaching on the Jewish space, if you will, in their look and their feel and, and, and everything, it, it's, it's definitely a more complicated yeah. situation. But for me, becoming Messianic was about my Jewish soul and my Jewish identity and trying to make a... Um, it's the term I'm, I'm looking for, you know, trying to... Harmonize. Yeah, that's a good term. Uh, create harmony between my beliefs and who I knew myself to be, you know, born a Jewish person. It's interesting is that on two fronts. Number one, my impression of sort of mainline Christian groups has been that uh, there was an intentional sense that the, the old covenant had been replaced. They yeah, replaced absolutely. With theology and there was yeah. an abrogation. You know, it's, I'm not I'm no scholar, but you know, I understand right. that. You know, the whole idea was, was that uh, the Council of Nicaea and that they replaced. Right. You know, there was no longer a need for for active mitzvot and things like that. Right. So, although, of course, these things are written in the Old Testament in, in the Jewish Bible, they were no longer necessary to observe. So, why did you feel that you needed to observe them? A and B. Did your husband feel that pull as well, or he felt that was only for you as a quote-unquote Jew? That's a really good question. Um, so the thing was is that we looked from this new perspective, if you will, back into the New Testament and said, wait a minute, Jesus was a Jew. He kept the mitzvot, right? And if he is the promised Messiah who fulfilled the prophecies in the Jewish Bible, which he didn't, by the way, but you know, I just have to add that. But if he did then it can't be wrong for us to be believers in him as our faith and do these things. And if anything, it's probably the more authentic way of being a Christian. Of course, we know from history that the earliest, earliest Christians were Jews. Sure. It didn't take very long for it to become primarily a non-Jewish religion. You know, it was very, you know, by 30, 30, 40, you know, years later, um, it was primarily a non-Jewish faith, especially after um, he... Roman Empire and adapted it. Even before that. Um, you know, Jesus said some things in the New Testament that are um, understood to mean that he was saying that he was going to come back and fulfill all of those things that he hadn't done because, of course, everybody looked around and said, wait a minute, Messiah is supposed to be, bring world peace, and he hasn't brought world peace. Um, and he said, you know, I'm going to come back before this generation tastes of death. So everybody understood that certainly within 100 years, he was going to come back. So it wasn't a, when he didn't come back, and the Jews are like, no, okay, we understand we have these, this idea of potential messiahs. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Obviously, there's some things documented in the New Testament that the Jewish establishment was not happy with him. Um, how much of it is true or not, we're not 100% sure. But, you know, but the Jews say, okay, so we'll wait and we'll see what happens. Well, after 50 years of not coming back, 60 years of not coming back, all of the original believers are now dying or dead. Um, and he hasn't come back. And so like 
many of the messianic movements throughout our history, we said, okay, he wasn't the Messiah. Maybe he was a potential Messiah for our generation, maybe not. But he definitely was not the Messiah. He didn't come back. He didn't do what he was going to say. He didn't bring world peace. He didn't reestablish you know, worship in the temple and, and all of that. And uh, and at that point, the temple had been destroyed or was in the process of being destroyed, depending on which part you're looking at. And so then what the non-Jews said, well, you know, if he's not the Messiah, then we're kind of, we're, we're messed up here because, um, you know, the, the early, early church was preaching this idea that if you believed in the Jewish Messiah, in some way you were becoming part of the Jewish people without having to convert but that you were now part of the chosen people, part in God's economy, so to speak. And so when, when he didn't come back and they were like, we're screwed. I mean, what are we going to do, right? Um, they said, okay, so we must have misunderstood. He's not the Messiah, Moshiach, who is going to be a physical king, who's going to bring a physical rescue, the word Yeshua in Hebrew, Right? That doesn't mean spiritual rescue. It means physical rescue. Um, and it only ever means physical rescue, which I think is an important people for un to understand because a lot of the Messianic Jews will say, well, his name isn't Jesus. His Hebrew name was Yeshua, and that's what he did. He brought a spiritual salvation. But the word Yeshua in Hebrew doesn't mean spiritual salvation. It means a physical rescue. So um, when he didn't come back, they said, okay, well, maybe he was the Moshiach. You know, he was a savior a spiritual thing. It wasn't a physical thing. And when he comes back, he'll take care of all of the physical uh, prophecies. They had to change the idea from this physical redeemer to a spiritual redeemer because clearly he didn't come back and bring this, um, you know, world of peace and everything that the Jewish scriptures said that the right. Messiah was going to do. So anyway, that's kind of where the transition went from. But... Um, and so as it became a non-Jewish faith, really, I think that the church, especially when you say, you know, how the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire kind of institutionalized it as the state religion, and, and of course Constantine recognized the power of religion and used it as a tool to, to use control over people, and of course we know where that went, the Spanish Inquisition eventually and all of that. But, um, so you kind of felt that you were returning to the orig original intent. Exactly. And that the, uh, the ab abdication of mitzvot was kind of a corruption. Of sorts at some point. Exactly, exactly. That I felt that the Jewish people were still obligated to do the things that God had done. And, and the way that I dealt with the verses that said that you're no longer under the law um, was that what that meant was while we still were given this framework of behavior, if you will, um, in our relationship with God, there were no longer the consequences for sin mm. because those were taken by belief in Jesus. So that was it. It was not that we no longer, just like Christians who believe that Jesus has saved them don't believe that it's okay to go and murder, right? They believe that they still have a code of behavior that God expects from them. And so we just expanded that from the Ten Commandments to the 613. That, that we as Jews, that I as a Jew, still had this obligation. And my husband also agreed with this. And like many non-Jews who are involved in the Messianic movement, felt that this Messianic way of being was more authentic because that's how Jesus lived. And so they feel like they're living like Jesus. What lived. would Jesus do? Exactly. Exactly. That right. is exactly what it is.
Okay, beautiful. So you're in this, uh, fast forwarding a little bit. So you're in this messianic space. You're starting this church. Right. What was it called, by the way? Um, it was, what was it called? Um, Knesset Hashuvim. The, the congregation it, of return exactly Returners. Interesting. exactly and okay. so um we began to um you know teach this idea of torah observance as believers in we called them yeshua but jesus you know and uh, we did this with my parents jointly for about three years and did you get out of the following yeah yeah i mean we had i mean not huge you know we had about 40 50 people at one point um and then we were we decided, my husband and I, we were kind of getting a little burnt out because, you know, it's just, it's tense working that closely with your parents. Yeah. I'm sure they were equally burned out. Uh, and we decided that we valued our relationship with my parents more than our position as leaders. And so we decided to leave. And my parents continued to run the congregation for several more years. Meanwhile, we had to figure out what to do. And I kind of fast forward, skip my book. I give a little more details because we did a little stint in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But we eventually landed in the Messianic Congregation in Northern Virginia. And um, while we were there, though, there was an event at the Messianic Congregation in Baltimore, which is where my sister and her family were attending. And after the event, there was food, because let's face it, you have Jews, you have an event, you have have food. food. That's right. It doesn't matter that they believe in Jesus, you know? Jews plus event equals food. So we're standing around afterwards, and there's this really nice blonde-haired lady who's trying to convince me that the food is kosher because she can tell by looking at me that that might be something that's important to me. And while she's talking to me about the the kosher food, she stops mid-sentence. And she says to me, how would you like to buy a nice big five-bedroom house in Upper Park Heights in Maryland? She says, in fact, I believe that God wants you to buy this house. (laughs) Now, my audience, if I have a primarily Jewish audience when I'm telling my story, they always burst out laughing when I say that because it sounds so odd. But in the Christian world, it's actually not that odd. And um, so I was used to people talking like that, but I did think that maybe she was a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. (laughs) And um, I'm not one for confrontation. I'm actually not very good at confrontation at all. In fact, last night I had a confrontation with a Christian woman who was in the audience, which is like, oh my God, how do I deal with this? So anyway, um, so I decided how I would deal with it was I would tell her I needed to talk to my husband because like marriage 101, blame it on your husband. Sure. Works. And um, I, you know, I knew what he was going to say. He worked in Northern Virginia. We were attending a, a congregation in Northern Virginia. We were eventually going to move there. Baltimore was nowhere on our radar screen. And, you know, like, what? Are you crazy? So I go over to my husband and I tell him about what this woman has said. And she even offered to hold the mortgage for us so we wouldn't have to qualify, you know? And he's. This was her house? Or this, this was her house. She okay. owned this house. She, right. She wanted to sell the house. And, um,. So instead of reading the script and telling me I was crazy and we weren't going there, my husband says, well, we can take a look at it. So as I say, I I had it on good authority. That was the first and last time I was ever speechless. But uh, we made an appointment and we went to go see the house. And long story short, I mean, we drove up to to the house and I got this feeling like I was home. We went in, we fell in love with the house. It was three times the size of the house we were living in. And I was homeschooling four children in my dining room. My walls are closing in on me. So, of course, I fell in love with the house. And it had a lot of character, too. And what street was it on? Just it curious. was on West Strathmore Street, sure. across from what is now Benos and mm-hmm. used to be Rambam. Sure. So, if any of your listeners are from Baltimore, yes, we were the missionaries in the missionary house on Strathmore. Um, so... 
we made arrangements. Well, so what happened was actually we went first. We went to our messianic congregation and we asked them to pray concerning whether or not it was God's will for us to buy this house, because you know we didn't know what to do, and so um, they even held a special prayer meeting for the purpose. And wouldn't you know it, all 250 members of the congregation unanimously agreed, which right there is like a, it's a miracle right <laughs> That's there. A tell. Yeah, um, that it was God's will for us to buy this house. Why? Because who better to convert Orthodox Jews to Messianic Judaism than Messianic Jews who look and act like Orthodox Jews, right? And so we made arrangements and we moved in. Well, we uh, were kind of shocked. We thought, you know, you move into a suburbs, you know, into a home that uh, the neighbors are all going to stop by, say hello, introduce Couple themselves. Pie, yeah. Right, exactly, a cake. <laughs> you know, in Israel, when they, they did that for us, when we moved into one of our neighborhoods, they actually brought us wine, which is, hey, I mean, that's a good reason to make Aliyah, right? Um, but no, so we were kind of a little surprised by the fact that like nobody was very friendly and it wasn't that they meant to be rude it was that they didn't know what to do with us because what happened was i didn't know this until many years later actually that when the woman had bought the house three years later or three years earlier and she wasn't jewish we knew that when she had bought the house three years earlier she took it upon herself to go knocking door to door to all of her jewish neighbors to and they were all jewish to make us west strathmore is a very jewish street to make sure that they all knew that they were hopelessly lost and going to burn in hell forever because they didn't believe in Jesus. So you can imagine how the neighbors felt about her and how when she told them that she had sold the house, how ecstatic they were. Until she told them that a nice messianic family was moving in next door. So people door. knew who you were. Yeah, people okay. on that street definitely knew that this messianic family was moving in. And, and you know, Orthodox Jews in the Western world, we know how to live next door to non-Jews. That's not a problem. But how do you live next door to Jews whose sole purpose, pun intended, <laughs> is to convert you and your family to some form of Christianity? And so they didn't know what to do with us. And we moved in and... Suddenly, I don't know why we didn't think about this before, but suddenly my husband and I realized that we had a problem because if we drove on Shabbat, um, nobody in the community was going to listen to a word we had to say. And yet that was the whole purpose for moving into the community, right, was to spread our message. And the Messianic congregation in Baltimore was not in walking distance of that, dis mm. of that home. So we prayed about it. And what we decided to do was on Shabbat, we would drive to one of the more than a dozen, you know, congregations, I mean, sorry, walk to one of the more than a dozen Orthodox synagogues in walking distance of the house. And in the middle of the week, we would drive to the Messianic congregation to get our fill of, of Yeshua, of Jesus. So which congregation do we go to? Well, it turns out that Rabbi Lisbon was, and he still is, uh, a congregational rabbi in Baltimore. So that's how we decided where we would go. Huh. And so we looked it up on the internet. Internet was actually still relatively new at that time, but his information was there. And we decided that that's where we would go on Shabbat. So fortunately for us, it was about a quarter of a mile walk from our house. And so they didn't know who we were. And we went to the congregation and the people there were amazing, very warm, very welcoming. They helped me to follow along in the, in the reading, in the Torah reading, in the prayers. Just lovely, lovely people. And on the other side of the mechitza, the divider between the men's and the women's section, what happens when a new guy is invited, you know, shows up in town? They give him, they call him up to the Torah, right? They give him Ooh. an aliyah to the Torah. 
So here's my husband. He's wearing a talit and a kippah. He's got a sitter. He's, he looks like he's praying. He's got three boys with him who are also wearing kippot and tzitzit. And so they give him an aliyah. They offer him an aliyah to the Torah. And my husband says, well, I, I'm not Jewish. Now, this is an interesting point, and I make it a very big point when I give my talks because it's important for the Jewish world to understand that in Messianic congregations around the world, there are a lot of non-Jews. In fact, there are more non-Jews in Messianic congregations than there are Jews. And that's okay. They can attend whatever kind of church they want to go to. But they're learning not only how to act and uh, look like Orthodox Jews, but they learn how to make the blessings on being called to the Torah. Some of them even learn how to lean, how to pray, read from the Torah. And then they'll visit an Orthodox synagogue, be counted in a minion, be given an aliyah. Instead of saying, I'm not Jewish, they make up a fake Hebrew name. Right. And they're creating a deception. You know, they're not being honest. And I say it's a crime against the Jewish people. Okay, that's a little harsh, but still, it's not right. It's not honest. But your husband didn't do that. No, my husband is a man of tremendous integrity, and he said, I'm not Jewish. So what was the reaction there? So I'm not 100% sure in the moment. They were probably, I mean, the congregation was probably used to getting some visitors that weren't Jewish or whatever. I Perspective mean, converts or something like right, that. Right, exactly. And so, um, you know, I'm sure they were just like, okay. Um, so they knew my husband wasn't Jewish, and, and they knew that I was, and so therefore the children were as well. We went there for a few weeks, or a couple weeks anyway, and my husband, who is this man of tremendous integrity, says to me, you know, we need to tell the rabbi what we believe, because at some point it's going to come out, obviously, and we don't want him to feel like we've been lying to him. We don't want him to feel betrayed, that we've been deceptive. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't see that ending well. <laughs> um, but he insisted, and so I relented, and we invited the rabbi to come talk to us. And, you know, the rabbi, of course, thought that we were coming to, t you know, knowing that my husband wasn't Jewish and I was, right? Talking about conversion. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so he comes in, and my husband starts telling him what he believes. And after a minute or two, he stops him. And he says, well, you don't believe that anymore, do you? To which my husband says, yeah, I do. <laughs> so in the moment uh, that, that it took for shock to register on the rabbi's face, I began to see my world implode because we had just moved into this very expensive house. We couldn't turn around and sell it. Um, I was homeschooling my children. They were starting to make friends in the community. If they kicked us out of the synagogue and, you know, who were my kids going to play with? And maybe they were going to take our pictures and put them on posters and post them on lampposts, you know, warning missionaries, stay away. Maybe my kids were going to get beat up. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I started to cry. So the rabbi turned to me and he said, well, what do you believe? I mean, really, really wise man picked up on this moment of emotionality. And at this point in my story, I had been a Christian for 17 years. I had been responsible for bringing hundreds, if not thousands, of people to Christianity. I knew what I believed. That was not a question. But in that moment of emotionality, I just kind of went, Rabbi, I don't know what I believe. And I said, please, please don't kick us out of the shul. Don't kick us out of the synagogue. Well, the rabbi was silent for a while. I wasn't sure if he was ever going to say anything again. But when he spoke, he said to me the most important words that anyone has ever said on my Jewish journey. He said to me, you are a Jew no matter what you believe, even though what you believe is not Judaism. He said, let me be clear. 
It's not Judaism. It's not kosher. It's not okay. But you're a Jewish woman who is responsible before God to fulfill the mitzvot, the commandments that God gave the Jewish people. He said, therefore, I'm going to allow you and your children to continue to come to the synagogue. He said, I'm not ready for your husband to come because, uh, of course, he didn't know what to do with him. He said, but there's one caveat. I want you to talk to a guy from an organization called Jews for Judaism. And at that time, Mark there was... Powers? Yes, exactly, Mark Powers. Uh, eventually, it was run by Mark, uh, by Scott Ruth Hillman. And Ruth right, and then Ruth Guggenheim, <laughs> exactly. Um, and Ruthie was there for the whole... Like, she was with Mark, and she was with right. you know, um, Scott, and, and by herself, of course. But um, So I didn't know... I'd never heard of Jews for Judaism, but I'm not stupid. Jews for Jesus, Jews for Judaism. They probably don't like people like me very much. But... What am I going to do? So I kind of agreed with the idea that I was just going to conveniently forget about it and hopefully he would conveniently forget about it and we would just be able to continue with the status quo. But he didn't. He kept calling me and saying, Panina, have you called Mark? Have you called Mark? Have you made an appointment? Eventually, the tone changed and he made it kind of clear that if I didn't call this guy... Ultimatum. Right. Well, I mean, he didn't do it outright, but... I, I'm good that was, that at read, the reading between the lines, exactly, that something was going to change. And so I called Mark, I bit the bullet, he came over, he walks into our house and he says, so let's talk about why you think that Jesus is the Messiah. I thought to myself, yeah, you start every conversation. This <laughs> nice but, to meet you too. Yeah, exactly. But he came in and he sat down and my husband um, decided to do the talking and I was perfectly happy to let him do the talking and he throws out a verse and, and Mark says, um, he turns to me and he says, um, well, at first he says, let's take a look at that. So he opens the Bible to the book of Yeshayahu, sure. Isaiah, where this verse comes Suffering from. Suffering servant. Uh, no, it was the virgin birth, actually. Okay. And um, he says, now, Panina, you've read this verse in its context before, right? And I said, of course, I read my Bible every year from cover to cover. And in fact, there's a lot of people who don't realize that that is evangelical Christians um, that is their goal to read their Bible every year. You know, we do a Siam Hashas, right? Yeah. right? Exactly. Seven years to go through the. Uh, and I actually participate now in a Nach Yomi, uh, you know, going through the, um, the writings and the prophets. I do it not in one year, I do it in two years, so I'm only reading one chapter a day. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, but the goal of evangelical Christians is to read through their Bible every year. And two thirds of their Bible is basically ours. I mean, it's. You know, again, mistranslated, and and the order of the books has sure. changed, but the essence of it is still our Tanakh, and and so in fact, there are a lot of people who would say that they know our Bible better than we do, and I give all of my audiences a challenge, that if you're a Jewish person, and you've never read, read the Tanakh, you know all of it, not just the Parsha. Um, to make up your mind, you owe it to yourself as a Jew to know what's inside, and especially. Um, you know, a lot of the from men, the religious Orthodox men who study the Gemara, you know, the Gemara is pretty clear that before you study Gemara, you have to study Mishnah. And before you study Mishnah, you need to study the Tanakh. If you've never read the Tanakh, all of it, you know, and you can read it in, and I believe in, in, in English, you know, just to be familiar with it. So you need to do it from a Jewish translation. Sure. And even though I don't actually like the article translation for most purposes, for this purpose it's perfect because we do have certain, we have a, a belief that 
if you read just the plain text by itself with no commentary, um, it's easy to misunderstand certain things and come up with actually false beliefs. And so the Art Scroll Tanakh actually takes into account the Midrash yeah. and, and our tradition so that you don't make those mistakes when you're reading it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's actually a real shame that Jews don't read their own Bible. And so that's part of my agenda. And I got it from the rabbis that run Jews for Judaism, so I'm not alone in, in, in promoting this. Um, but anyway, so back to the story. So he says, you, you read this, you've read this in its context before. And I said, of course, I read my Bible every year. And he said, well, but when you read it, you see Jesus on every page, right? And I said, of course, who else could it be about? And he said, well, I want you to do me a favor just this once. I want you to read through this chapter with me without having the bias that it must be talking about Jesus. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people to whom Isaiah was writing, which was 700 years before the destruction of the second temple 700 years before jesus ever walked this earth he said would you be willing to do that for me and i said yeah i would and so for the first time in 17 years i read through this passage in isaiah without the preconceived notion that it was talking about jesus and of course i discovered that it wasn't talking about jesus it's not even a messianic passage which is really interesting because we do have some messianic passages like you mentioned the suffering servant which do pose more of an issue for us we have to dig deeper to understand what they're saying because they are messianic so then the question is did he fulfill it or didn't he but isaiah chapter 7 isn't even a messianic passage and we know how it was fulfilled and in chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah talks about who this child that will be born to the young woman is. And anyway, so I read through this passage and I realized it wasn't messianic. And he showed me how that particular verse has to be mistranslated in order for it to say what they claim it says. Nara, right? It's translating as virgin instead of young right, woman. Right, right. Well, it, right, exactly. It's not Nara. It's, um, I'm drawing a blank at the, at the moment. It's... Um, Instead of Betula, it is... Alma. Alma, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so let's start that again. Um, not Naara, it's Alma, Alma yeah. which just means youth. It doesn't, right? It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not a person has been intimate with another person. And that's a whole other lesson about, um, about male and female anatomy and the choice of the words. And the prophet Isaiah uses the word Betula, virgin, in other verses in chapters preceding this. So if that's what he really meant, right. that's what he would have used, but he didn't, because that's not the point. And he says who this woman was in the next chapter. So anyway, so we only touched on one other corollary issue, and Mark left. I don't even know if he was, I don't think he was with us as long as this interview is taking, yeah. but he left me with a lot to chew on, because if this one core belief that I had believed all my uh, the past 17 years was based on a lie what else did I believe was based on a lie and I'll make a long story short I just went back and I, I I visited his office every other day asking him you know what about this verse what about this verse and he said let's take a look at it and I didn't take his word for it I went back to Jews for Jesus I went back to my pastors I went back to my friends I did my own research and unfortunately what I found was that you know we have this past this verse in the book of Mishlei which is Proverbs that says the first person to make a case seems right until another comes along and argues against it and I discovered that Christianity was banking on the fact in quotes fact that Judaism ha doesn't have an answer because when you really dig down deep the only thing that we were left with you know, I, I was like, okay, Judaism says this, Christianity says this, what's the correct interpretation of this verse? That 
it really always boiled down to we know what it looks like, but we know he's the Messiah in our heart. You know, we know he's the Messiah. And for somebody who was seeking truth, that emotional connection was not enough. Yes, I believed in him. Yes, I had had miracles happen in my life in that context, but I wanted the truth. If he, if you're claiming that he's the Messiah, there has to be proof. And you're claiming that he fulfilled 300 of the prophecies of the, or more than 300 prophecies that were given for the Messiah in the Tanakh. And the truth is, is that pretty much all of them aren't even prophecies. And the ones that are prophecies, he didn't fulfill. And so long story short, I obviously abandoned, you know, one by one, the bricks of my faith were being pulled out and the entire structure had to collapse. And then I was faced with the daunting task, of course, of figuring out what I did believe. Did I still believe in God? Did I still believe the Tanakh was God's word? Did I believe that I had to be Orthodox? Could I be something else, you know? And, uh, but I did embrace eventually Torah Judaism. I like to joke with my audience because at this point they're probably getting sleepy. And I say I converted to Buddhism and they all laugh, and, <laughs> you know, but, um, but no. And, and then, so I'm married to right, a Christian husband. man. I had brought my mom and my dad and my sister to. Saying, what about the family? Yeah, it was a whole big thing. Uh, but the biggest thing was at that point, my kids were six, eight, 10, and 12 years old. My son was less than a year from Bar Mitzvah. And I knew that the synagogue was not going to bar mitzvah him if he still believed in Jesus. So my first priority was to talk with him about all of these things that I had discovered and to encourage him. And because I was a homeschooling mom, I was able to assign him uh, to encourage him to go through these verses and to come up with his own belief system. And he did. And he decided that Judaism was the truth. And so he was bar mitzvahed a year later. And during, at the same shul. At the same shul. Well, yeah, the bar mitzvah was in the shul, and then we had a backyard barbecue because we, fortunately, my son's birthday is in June and not January <laughs> um, because it was the only way that we could have the community join us because they weren't sure about what to do with us, even though I had become religious. My husband was still a Christian. And, um, but meanwhile, I was also talking to my mom and dad about the things that I was discovering. And my dad was bound and determined to prove that the Jews were actually mistaken. So I would come to him and I'd say, hey, dad, have you looked at this about the virgin birth? And he would say, um, you know, well, I'll take a look at it. And he was, he was going to prove that the Jewish interpretation of that passage was wrong. And he would come back and say, actually, you're right. The Jews are right. And one by one, his beliefs were changing. Um, and his congregation, because he began to teach differently, his congregation started dropping off one by one. By the time of my son's bar mitzvah, there were only a couple of a few people left in the congregation. And I had managed to give a pretty convincing explanation to my father. And even though my husband really did not like Mark at all, um, because he had featured so prominently in our life during that 10 months, we did invite him to the to the bar mitzvah, and so during the bar mitzvah, I looked out the window and I noticed that Mark was talking with my parents. And a few hours later, I looked out the window again, and he was still talking with my parents. And what happened was, my dad had pretty much been convinced by the discussions that we had had, but he still had a few remaining questions, and he was picking Mark's brain, and Mark was clarifying these answers for him. Excuse me. And so by the end of the bar mitzvah party, my parents had decided to come back to Judaism as well. 
And, um, but not my husband. My husband never had any doubts. He was a true believer. He was a Christian. And these arguments, and I imagine you would talk with it, you know. Oh, yeah. A lot of pillow talk about, uh, you know. Oh, all these <laughs> my gosh. You have no idea and if so you had been a fly not... on the wall. Let me tell you, before I came back to Judaism, my husband and I had an amazing relationship. We never argued. Not that we didn't disagree, but we never fought. And now everything I said offended him and everything he said offended me. And we were fighting all the time. And everybody was convinced that we absolutely were going to get divorced, not because of the difference in faith as much as because of the belief, because of the fighting. Um, and so two years after I came back to Judaism, so a year after the bar mitzvah, my husband and I are having one of our standard fights, and he made me really angry. I don't even remember what it was now. He made me really angry, and I responded to him by saying, oh, you just say that because you're a Christian. Wow. Yeah. To which he said to me, actually, no, I'm not. And I was like, wait, what? He said, no, really. He said, over the past two years, you've given me enough reason to doubt the validity of the New Testament. I cannot believe in Jesus anymore. He said, but... I don't necessarily believe Judaism is the truth with a capital T. I'm not ready to trade one flawed religion for another. And so, but at that point, his status had changed in the community. He was now considered what we call a Noahide or a Ben Noah, a, a, a righteous Gentile who believes in God and, and the Jewish Torah, but, but is not necessarily convinced he needs to convert to Judaism. Sure. And, but that status change helped us to start uh, to change in the community. We were able to start taking classes. We took a lot of classes at the Yitz Chaim Center uh, with Rabbi Porter, sure. right? And long story short, two and a half years after that, four and a half years after I came back to Judaism, he did decide that Judaism was the truth with a capital T, and he converted to Judaism, and Paul Michael Taylor became Pinchas Moshe <laughs> uh, under the chuppah at the Etz Chaim Center. We were the first wedding at the new Etz Chaim Center, Center. Uh, yeah. And Rabbi yeah. Porter uh, yeah. did the service? Yeah, Rabbi Porter um, did his conversion, at, and Rabbi Porter was the Masadar Kedushin for our wedding, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So where where have you gone since then? Obviously, you're no longer in Baltimore. You mentioned you're living near Jerusalem. Correct. So obviously, some things changed there. And yeah. Where's your life gone? Oh, so I mean, you know, long story there also because um, after I decided, I started working for Jews for Judaism. I worked for Jews for Judaism for a year and a half, and then we decided to make Aliyah. And again, that's a whole other talk, and we really probably don't have a lot of time for that. But um, after we moved to Israel, I started my own counter-missionary organization and um, but at some point as I began doing a lot of personal growth work a lot of work on my own healing because I had 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 to deal with a lot of trauma and abuse that had happened in my own life and as I began to deal with that um, I realized that I really didn't want to spend my life tearing something down, which is what being a counter-missionary is, right? You're tearing Christianity down. What I wanted to do was build people up. I decided that I wanted to devote my life. I still wanted to devote my life to making a tikkun for what I had done and to help Jews become better Jews, better connected Jews, connected to Hashem and, and Torah and mitzvot. But I decided that I wanted to do it a different way. Instead of tearing down Christianity, I wanted to spend my life building people up. And so I moved into more inspirational speaking and teaching and um, motivational. I don't like the word motivational because motivation actually comes from within inside you, not from without. But um, and so, yeah, but I also I wrote a book. 
because there was a lot of demand for that. And What's also, it called? It's called Coming Full Circle, and it's available on Amazon. If you go today, it probably says out of stock, but if you wait, a, uh, I'll have to go in. A couple days. That. Yeah, <laughs> wait a couple of days, um, uh, or on my website. You can order it on my website, and I'll send it Which out. Which is what? Um, it's PaninaTaylor.com, and then just go to shop, and the book is available Panina's there. is with uh, an E, P-E-N, or just P-E-N? P-E-N-I-N-A-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. And uh, yeah, there's a, a few things out there. And if anybody wants me to come and speak, obviously they can contact yeah. me through there. And you mentioned to me earlier that you have, a, or earlier in this talk, that you have yeah. a podcast of your own. Tell, tell us about that. I do. I do. It's wonderful. It's called Leap of Faith. It airs on Israel. It's going to be Taylor Talk or Taylor no, Time. No, yeah. No. Um, Leap of Faith. Okay. Leap of Faith. It's on Israel News Talk Radio. Yep. And basically I interview people about their journey to Torah. So it's only about their journey to Torah, whereas other podcasts interview people with just incredible stories. Sure. Um, and I interview converts. I interview, you know, Balei Tshuva returnees. Mm. Um, and I even have some non-Jews, some Noahides who have um, left Christianity or other faiths and, and decided to become, um, she, uh, we call this students of the seven mitzvah, observers of the seven mitzvahs of Noah, Noahides. Um, but it's a really incredible experience spending your life. You know, so many people bring me out to tell my own story that it's really wonderful to spend time interviewing people about their stories sure. because you discover that people are amazing and complex and everybody has a story. Of course, some stories are more entertaining and yes. more interesting and some people tell their stories better than others, but everybody has a story. And so um, right now there are... 50 approximately because i'm coming in on my one year anniversary nice, 50 episodes, huh? yeah and they're all podcasted so it airs live on sunday mornings new york time is 10 a.m israel time is 5 p.m and then it's released as a podcast awesome. so you can go to israelnewstalkradio.com leap of faith and you can see okay. all of those and my story of course is is the first one by one of them i interviewed my oldest son who considers himself a uh born again twice if you will uh you know balay tshuva again uh, because, How old are your children now? Uh, now you're going to ask me to tell my age. <laughs> now you're just there. You yeah, well, at, uh, oh, yeah, I had them at 10. <laughs> I had them at 10. We know that's not uh, true because you got the story. <laughs> right, exactly. No, my kids are now 26, 28, 30, and almost 32. Wow. And married, they're all married. All they're married. all religious. They all live in Israel, although my youngest is currently spending some time in America with, my, with his in-laws his wife and her family, uh, but they all live in Israel. They all have children. We just saw the birth of our ninth Beautiful. Our ninth grandchild, yeah. And I don't feel old enough to have nine no, grandchildren. No, you don't look either. That's Thank fine. Thank you. <laughs> That's incredible. But uh, yeah, and so um, I'm currently on this speaking tour in the United States. I'm coming back. It looks like I have an invitation for Pennsylvania in February. So if anybody would like to have me come speak in February in your community, please spread the word that I'm open. And that means you don't have to pay for me to come from Israel. You just have to pay for me to come from New York. So yeah. Um, and what's next for you? Any other projects that you're kind of looking towards and what, what haven't you done yet that, yeah. you, that you want to do? Well, at this point, I'm hoping to get out a few more books. I have a, a list of about a dozen, believe it or not, based on talks that I've given um, of personal growth within the context of Torah. Um, I also put together, because I've done so much work on myself and I teach and I coach, that um, I discovered about five years ago that I really had enough material to have a full day personal growth workshop. Sure. And because I feel like 
my life changed trajectory because of the work that I learned, uh, what I learned and the work that I did. I really wanted to make this accessible to people. You know, when you look at Tony Robbins, first of all, you have all these secular gurus, but it's not Torah oriented. And, um, and we do have a few Torah based um, personal growth workshops. Yom Tov Glazer doing right, exactly. And, yeah. I actually worked with Yom Tov Glazer for three years. Okay, cool. So um, he's been on the I podcast. See. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. I interviewed so, him live, also actually at his house in Jerusalem uh, in Nachlaot at about one o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night. Oh my gosh, night when the that place sounds. Was, yeah, the place was hopping. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> Rabbi Glazer. It was yeah. an honor to work with him. I worked yeah. with him for three years, presenting about half of his material when sure. he had women's when right, he did right, women's. Right. He didn't want to be the sole presenter when it was a women women's seminar, right. and that makes sense. And I was also his head coach during that time, so I trained oh, wow. the coaches and stuff like that. And Daniel Katz and, has one, and there's right, exactly. Um, but they are very, very in depth, and there is definitely um, a need for that. I had. As I worked with him, I had my own additional breakthroughs, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. I consider him my mentor, and I um, I didn't plagiarize. I used only my own original materials, some of which I developed for his for his seminar yeah. when I was teaching it. But um, a lot of it was just stuff that I had teached and used in coaching over the years. And I realized about five years ago that I had enough to put together a full day seminar. So I wanted to make this very beginning level. Um, knowledge available and accessible to people and affordable and um, so you know of course it's to my own detriment because it means I'm not getting wealthy from it but it does mean that I'm accomplishing the thing that I feel like I was created in this world to accomplish which is to inspire people towards uh, a healthier relationship with themselves and with God and with the Jewish people. Have you have any any interaction with uh, either Shira Gura or Chaya Hinda Allen? Um, not directly, but yeah. uh, of course I've heard of uh, I've interviewed I've heard both them. of them in age. Well, <laughs> right. So of... Shira, I, um, I actually had a coaching, uh, opportunity at one point very early on, but, um, that, um, so I made this, this full day workshop right now. I'm uh, going to be giving one in Houston. If any of your listeners oh, are in Houston, there's still tickets available, please. Uh, I need a minimum number of people sure. to make it worthwhile. And so I still need a few more people to buy tickets for Houston. That's February 15th. It's a Sunday. It's that's, oh, that's this coming Sunday. I don't even know if this is going to air by December then. 15th. Yeah. December 15th. Um, but it's all day. And then the 16th and 17th, I'm doing it as two pieces in the evenings in Las Vegas, but I'm happy to come back out in February and do either a full day workshop or a two evening workshop for any community that would like to do it. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like quite, quite the saga, uh, <laughs> quite full circle. Any, have, has anyone that you were really close to kind of remained in the Christian world? You have, how about your sister? My or? sister is still a believer. Um, and, but we've had some really, we have a fantastic relationship. Every time I come back to the States to speak, I try, it doesn't happen every time, but I try to spend time with her. Where does she live now? And uh, she lives in Western Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was one time she actually, she had pneumonia and I came and I spent two weeks with her and helped her. And, uh, it was really fabulous because at the end of our visit, she, she and I were both in tears. We were going to miss each other, of course. And she turned to me and she said, you know, you've really changed my view of Orthodox Jews. She said, I no longer believe that you're going to hell. Mm. And I felt like we've made progress, That's a step. you know, and the cool thing is my sister and I have this unspoken agreement. If you will, we talk about God, you know, and we talk about religion within the Jewish context. We don't talk about anything that we don't both agree on. 
and we have a wonderful visit with each other and we love each other and we spend time with each other and the parts that we don't agree on we just you know we've got so much more in common than her belief in Jesus you know and whether or not I do and I think that that's like a really important lesson if you have a close friend or a family member who who doesn't share your beliefs and this is a actually a principle from Rabbi Glazer and that is that we have to learn the difference between acceptance and approval and you can accept and love somebody Mm. for who they are without approving of all of their choices and that's a really important concept for us to wrap our heads around just because I love them does not necessarily mean I have to approve of everything they do and so you can have relationships with people based on other things besides your faith you Just know. in closing, I mean, how, how do you feel about, how do you deal with the fact that kind of you were sort of the propagator of this? <laughs> Not to guilt you, obviously. You were no, I have plenty of guilt yeah, over sure, that. Sure it's, you know, you're Jewish, so, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> obviously, you were doing all these things out of profound sincerity. Right, so exactly. It's, it's kind of hard to blame yourself when you didn't have that education. You were, you know, promoting what you truly and sincerely believed to be yes. correct. Yes, um, Nevertheless, I imagine there's that, there's that just inherent sense of feeling... You know, oh, I, I caused somebody to do something which I just now profoundly disagree with. Right. How do you kind of square with that? As So fortunately for me, uh, it's funny, I had an interview with Huffington Post once, and that was one of the questions that they asked. And the answer that I gave was that I do regret that I had not brought all of the Jews that I had brought to Christianity back to Judaism. Although, thank God, I did have the opportunity to reconnect with a few of them and to bring them back. Um, But the vast majority of people that I brought to Christianity were not Jewish. The vast majority of them were non-Jews. And while I still regret that as well, um, that is not as big of a deal and the primary see I was accused by the listen watchers of uh, the readers of Huffington Post of being a racist because I cared about the Jews and not the Mm. non-Jews but the truth is of course Judaism doesn't believe you have to be Jewish in order to have a relationship with God so I believe that if they're sincerely connecting with God even if it's misunderstood through Jesus they're (laughs) fine right Judaism believes that all the righteous have a place in the kingdom of heaven so you know it's um yeah but i mean that is why i devoted my life to trying to help jews to come back from judaism at first it was actually arguing against christianity but there are plenty of people who do that and do a very good job at that you know whether you're talking about michael skoback or tovia singer Exactly. Um, and of course, when I'm asked, I will. And, and frequently I'm brought in by the Jewish counter, the Israeli counter missionary organization, Yad Lachim, when they, when they, especially if they have a woman who's an English speaker, I'm a very appropriate choice to talk with them. And so I will. Um, but um, yeah, I do definitely. So that's why I, I devoted my life to making that tikkun, that repair, by trying to build Jews up and help them to have this healthy and strong and meaningful and relevant relationship with Hashem within the context of Judaism. Beautiful. Well, Panita Taylor, this certainly went longer than I think both of us expected. <laughs> yeah. But I uh, enjoyed every minute, and uh, I know that you. our listeners did as well. Thank you. And thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally... 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.